Good morning, and how is everybody doing today? I hope you're all doing well. Thank you for joining me today on Sunday Morning with Love and Action. I'm Ken Tuck, and I just want you to know I love Jesus. And more importantly for you, He loves you more than you can ever imagine. And I just praise God for His Son, Jesus, who gives us life here on earth and life eternal. And I'm just excited about His Word, excited about teaching His Word. And today we are going to continue our teaching of the 50 commands of Christ. But before we do, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us like you do. You love us like no other can. There is no love greater than your love, Father God. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And God, you raised him back to life from the dead. Jesus, you are alive and you live and you reign forever. And because you live, we can have eternal life if we just believe and surrender our lives to you. And I thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness and help me to just stay focused on you always, God. And God, help each one listening today to stay focused on you. And Father, if there's any out there listening who they just hadn't given their lives to you through your son, Jesus Christ, I pray today is the day they'll do that, that they will call out to you, Jesus, and ask you to forgive them, ask you to save them, ask you to be their Savior and Lord, Lord of all. And I just thank you, God, for those listening who are believers. God, I pray this teaching will build them up in their most holy faith in you and that each one of us will determine we're going to be great commissioned Christians, that we're going to tell people about you. We're going to tell people about your son, Jesus, and lead them to you and make disciples. And not only just make disciples, but train disciples who can also make disciples. So, Father, we just want to thank you for this time. We give you this time. We ask your Holy Spirit to teach us. And may we be doers of your word, Father God, and not hearers only. Again, God, we love you, and we praise you, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's start. Number 33 of the commands of the 50 commands of Christ. Beware of covetousness. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What does covetousness mean? What are signs of greed that show up in a person's life? Well, let's first define it. Covetousness is marked by an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions or another's possessions. And it really boils down to to greed. And so we need to be aware of that and don't fall into that trap because it is a trap. We can get caught up in coveting other people's stuff, other people's possessions, even other people. And Jesus warns us about that, warns us not to do that. And we generally associate greed with money, don't we? When we talk about greed, our minds usually go to money. And that's because that's a big part of it. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people misquote that. They say money is the root of all evil, but it's not. It's not money. It's the love of money. Because when we love money, then we become greedy. And when we become greedy, we covet. You can see how we start down a a trail that gets further and further away from God. And we don't want to get on that trail at all. So that's why Jesus warns us here and tells us not to covet. We can be greedy about other things too, can't we? We can be greedy or we can covet another person. A man can covet another man's wife or a wife can covet another woman's husband. 
and Jesus tells us, don't go down this road. Don't covet. Beware of covetousness. And it's obvious we can covet other things as well. But Jesus gives us this warning, and God tells us clearly what the result is of greed. Let's read Proverbs chapter 15, verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we see clearly in these four scriptures that being greedy, coveting, is not a good thing to do, is it? I mean, we see that in Proverbs that uh, whoever is greedy for unjust gain not only troubles himself, but his whole household. So we're not only putting ourselves in danger, we're putting our whole household in danger. In Ecclesiastes, the one who loves money is not going to be satisfied with money. And studies have been done that shows people who make a certain amount of income, like $100,000 income a year, what will make you happy? Well, if I can make 150. And you ask that person, what would make you happy? Well, if I can make 175000 And even millionaires, well, if I could have $3 million. It just keeps going up. That's because people are putting their love into money and their satisfaction in earthly things. And we know earthly things will not satisfy our soul. We can't take it with us either. We know the old saying, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse taking everything with you. We can't do that. And plus, if we're believers... When we get to heaven, gold is what the streets are made of. So the most prized possession on earth, gold, in the eyes of the world, is just asphalt in heaven. (laughs) So let's live for Jesus here. Let's don't live for earthly stuff, for materialistic things. Let's don't live for things that we think if we buy, it's going to make us happy. It's not. Let's live for Jesus Let's live for telling people about him, about making disciples. And when we get to heaven, we will see our reward and we will receive our reward. And it's going to be way more than we can ever think or can ever imagine. So let's keep our minds set on Christ. Let's keep an an eternal mindset is what we have to keep. And we see in Timothy, 1 Timothy there again, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we see that here every single day on this earth. So let's don't covet those things. Think about your own life. Do a self-evaluation. Is there anything that you covet? And if so, go immediately to God with it and tell him you don't want to do, you don't want to covet after whatever that is and that you want to ask him to help you to overcome that and to set your eyes on him, your heart on him and not on whatever that is you're coveting. Because the cure for covetousness is Jesus. Jesus can totally transform us in every single way. And we just need to let them do that and go through that process. It's a day-to-day process. I know when I first gave my life to Jesus back in 1989, he started changing me right there. And throughout the years, he's been changing me. And it's a process. And I still have a lot of change. And I need a lot more transformation in my life. Because 
we never truly arrive until we see him face to face in heaven. So let's always let him transform us and let's always go through that process of transformation because he wants to do more and more and more in all of our lives. Command 34, Jesus says, honor marriage. And let's read Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It's easy to see that Jesus takes marriage very seriously because God ordained marriage. And like Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave a father or mother and hold fast to his wife. Marriage being between a male and a female. It's very clear in scripture about that. And he tells us to honor our marriage. So let's talk about how married couples should relate to one another. The Bible talks about that as well. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. And this is Paul writing, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is very clear there in his writing, isn't he? He's telling us we're married, husband and wife, and don't deprive one another. And of course, he's talking about sexual relationships there, isn't he? Between the husband and the wife. And even says there that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, the wife does. Now, he's not talking about any kind of sexual abuse and that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying the wife and husband are together. They're not to have sex outside of that relationship, just husband and wife. And that husband and wife should come together so Satan won't tempt each other. Because we know, and we can even read in the Bible and see where great men in the Bible have fallen because of sexual temptation. So we need to also be aware of that ourselves, because if King David can fall like that, who's to say any of us can't? We need to stay focused on God, stay focused on his word. And if we do that, we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to obey his commands, and then that won't happen to us. So Jesus is telling us, honor our marriage Paul's talking about honor the marriage bed. And now let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And again, this is the apostle Paul writing. He writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, 
As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I wonder if the Apostle Paul knew how controversial that part of Scripture was going to be. Because we know it has been controversial in the world because it's saying wives submit to the husband. But let's just dig into that just a little bit deeper. We could go on and on on this Scripture right here and teach it. But I want to read you something out of the MacArthur Bible Commentary because I think it explains it very, very well. And so I'm just going to read it. It's titled, Christ's Design for the Home. Having established the foundational principle of submission there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul applied it first to the wife. The command is unqualified and applicable in every Christian to every Christian wife, no matter what her abilities, education, knowledge of Scripture, spiritual maturity, or any other qualities might be in relation to those of her husband. The submission is not the husband's to command, but for the wife to willingly and lovingly offer. The phrase, your own husband, limits the wife's submission to the one man whom God has placed over her. The spirit-filled wife recognizes that her husband's role in given leadership is not only God-ordained, but also a reflection of Christ's own loving, authoritative headship of the church. As the Lord delivered his church from the dangers of sin, death, and hell, so the husband provides for, protects, preserves, and loves his wife, leading her to blessing as she submits. Paul has much more to say to the man who has been placed in the role of authority within marriage. That authority comes with supreme responsibilities for husbands in regard to their wives. Husbands are to love their wives with the same sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. Christ gave everything he had, including his own life, for the sake of his church, and that is the standard of sacrifice for a husband, for a husband's love of his wife. The clarity of God's guidelines makes it certain that problems in marriage must always be traced in both directions so that each partner clearly understands his or her roles and responsibilities. Failure to love is just as often the source of marital trouble as failure to submit. So what Paul is writing about is, just break it all down, is love and respect. Husbands, we have to love our wives. It says, as Christ so loved the church. That's the ultimate love, because we know what Christ did for us. And wives, respect your husbands. If we have that operating in our relationships, our marital relationships, we're going to see how great marriage can actually be. And for those of y'all who have a biblical marriage, then you know, you already know how awesome a marriage can be. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but let's read a little bit more scripture first. 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, again, the Apostle Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So here's it's talking about the wives, even if your husband isn't living for the Lord, you need to still show him respect, is what Peter is saying, and that through your respectful and pure conduct, you may win your husband over to the Lord. And so Peter gives us a, a great piece of scripture there of how wives should respect their husbands because the ultimate goal is for them to be saved, for the husbands to be saved. And then he writes in verse 7 that, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And again, I want to go back to the MacArthur Bible commentary and read some of the offerings there that MacArthur writes, because I think it's very good and further explains what we just read out of 1 Peter chapter 3. And we read in chapter 2, Peter taught that living successfully as a Christian in a hostile world would require relating properly in two places, the civil society and the workplace. At the start of this chapter, he added two more places, the family and the local church. The term be submissive, Peter insisted that if Christians are to be witnesses for the Lord, they must submit not only to the civil order, but also to the social order, which God has designed. Submitting to their own husbands, women are not inferior to men in any way, any more than submissive Christians are inferior to pagan rulers or non-Christian bosses. But wives have been given a role which puts them in submission to the leadership which resides in their own household. In the phrase, some do not obey the word, talking about husbands, since obedience has been used in this letter to refer to believers and disobedience to non-believers, this is a non-Christian husband. In a culture in which women were viewed as lower than men, the potential for conflict and embarrassment in the marriage of a believer and unbeliever was significant, even as it is in contemporary society. Peter did not urge the Christian wife to leave her husband, to preach to her husband, or to demand her rights. But he said, be submissive. Why? Because that phrase, they might be won by the conduct of their wives. The loving, gracious submission of a Christian woman to her unsaved husband is the strongest evangelistic tool she has. Added to submission is modesty, meekness, and respect for the husband. So if you are a born-again believer wife who's married to a non-believing husband, Peter is saying here, the best way to reach him is through your example, through showing him respect as head of the household, through modesty and meekness. That's how you're going to reach your husband, not by constantly preaching to him, trying to beat him over the head with the Bible, as the saying goes, but it's really through your actions. That's how you're going to win your unsaved husband, ladies. It's through your example. And then verse 7 that we read, talking about the husband. Submission is the responsibility of a Christian husband as well. Though not submitting to his wife as a leader, a believing husband must submit to the loving duty of being sensitive to the needs, fears, and feelings of his wife. In other words, a Christian husband needs to subordinate his needs to hers, whether she is a Christian or not. 
Peter specifically notes consideration, chivalry, and companionship. The term weaker vessel, while she is fully equal in Christ and not inferior spiritually because she is a woman, she is physically weaker and in need of protection, provision, and strength from her husband. And the phrase, heirs together of the grace of life, here the grace of life is not salvation but marriage, the best relationship earthly life has to offer. The husband must cultivate companionship and fellowship with his wife, Christian or not. And then that phrase, so your prayers may not be hindered. This refers specifically to the husband's prayers for the salvation of his wife. Such a prayer would be hindered if he were not respectful of her needs and fellowship. So husbands, if you're a believer and your wife's not, again, you can't just constantly preach, preach, preach to her, but you need to serve her. You need to put her needs before yours. And it's saying here that we got to be respectful to our wives. We got to meet our wife's needs. We got to have that fellowship with our wives. We have to cultivate all of that. And that's how you're going to reach your wife who is unsaved. Again, through actions, just like the wife can reach her unbelieving husband by the way she acts. Same way with the husbands. It goes the other way as well. So if you're married to an unbeliever, then don't lose hope. Just turn to the Word and see what God is telling us to do and do it and pray. Pray for that unbelieving spouse and pray that God will open up his or her heart and that he or she will be saved. But a lot of it has to do with our actions. So let's make sure we are acting and behaving as God tells us to. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In this society that we live in today, this verse right here is not kept, is it? We see it in Hollywood, on TV and movies, play out where sexual immorality is looked at as something that everybody should be doing. But God tells us very clearly, we need to honor marriage. We don't need to be sexually immoral. We don't need to be adulterous. No matter how glamorous it looks on the big screen, there's nothing glamorous about it. It just destroys, destructs individuals, whole families. So let's be sure that we're honoring marriages. Now, you may be out there listening and saying, well, Ken, I've, I've been through a divorce or divorces. What now? Well, most importantly, I want you to understand there is forgiveness. If you were the one who cheated on your spouse, then you can go to God and you can ask him for forgiveness and he will forgive you. He promises to forgive us if we confess our sins to him. If you've gone through divorce and you feel guilty about it, well, again, go to the Lord and pray about that and ask him to take that guilt away. Ask him to forgive you. If you're really having a tough time, then I highly encourage you to seek Christian counseling about it. But know that God, he loves you. And he still wants the best for you. We mess up, don't we? But God still loves us. And God wants to put our lives back together again. And I just want you to understand that because I know many people have been through divorces and are going through divorces right now. Just lean on Jesus and let him bring forgiveness into your life. Let him put your life back together the way he wants it to be. Because when he does, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Let's continue talking about the subject, honor your marriage. Dr. Emerson Egrich, he wrote an excellent book 
entitled Love and Respect, and he shows that strength in a marriage comes from the husband giving his wife unconditional love and the wife giving her husband unconditional respect. But the cycle, as Dr. Egridge says, is easily broken. Without love from him, she responds without respect. Without respect from her, he reacts without love. We have to love, we have to respect one another. Just like we've read, just like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter tell us in Scripture that we've already covered. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love and respect your husbands. And husbands, you also got to respect your wives too. I'm going to share some keys to honoring marriage and a healthy marriage here in a moment from personal experience. But I want to talk about one more issue here. Well, not issue, but one more subject here. And that is, what does the Bible say about a good wife or quarrelsome wife? And let's read Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. We understand it's not good to be quarrelsome, is it? It's not good to be nagging. It's good to be loving and to be respectful. And what does God say about marrying an unbeliever? Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David. So we see here in the story of King Solomon that he disobeyed the Lord, first of all, by marrying these women from all these other people groups that God said, don't marry those people and don't give yourself to them and don't let them give themselves to you. Don't be married to them because they'll end up turning your heart away to other gods. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. And I love reading about King Solomon until we get to this part. And then my heart just breaks because he was living for God. He was doing what God wanted him to do. And God came to him and said, whatever you want, I'll give to you. How many times have you heard people basically treat God like a a genie in a bottle where you can rub the bottle and ask what you want and God's going to give it to you? Well, we know God doesn't work that way. But in this instance, that's pretty much what King Solomon had going on in his life. God said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom. And God gave it to him. And he was so wise, except for this part in his life. And he let all these wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines, turn his heart away from the one true God. And he didn't follow after God like his father David did. So when we marry an unbeliever, we can be led away from the one true God. So it's best that we can marry a believer. Because if we marry an unbeliever, there's a chance that that person is going to lead us away from God. Now, it can work the other way, right? But we don't know if it's going to or not. So it's good to, when you start dating and you're a believer, date another believer. Because if we can stay equally yoked, then the opportunity that the relationship is going to turn out very good 
is so much higher than it's if it's the other way. And I want to share one crucial key to a successful marriage before we finish up today's study, and we're about out of time. But I want to say that when you and your spouse put Jesus first and foremost in your lives, your marriage is going to be wonderful. And I'm going to use mine and Martha's marriage as an example. We both love each other tremendously, but I know that she loves Jesus more than she loves me. And Martha knows that I love Jesus more than I love her because nothing and nobody comes before Jesus. When a husband and wife do that, what happens is this. His love just fills up inside of both of us, and his love flows through me to Martha and through Martha to me. And so we're able to love each other with the love of Christ, and there's no greater love, and that makes our love for each other, our marriage, even better. So married couples out there, put Jesus first. Fall in love, head over heels in love with Jesus more than your own spouse, more than anyone else in this world. Because when we do that, then his love is going to flow through us to others. And I just really can't stress that enough. Love Jesus, love our Heavenly Father with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And watch the amazing things that he does in and through our lives. Well, we are out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us this morning on Sunday Morning with Love in Action. If you have any questions or comments, please contact me at ken.tuck at loveinactionministries.com, ken.tuck at loveinactionministries.com, or call our Love in Action office at 334-494-4995, 334-494-4995. Well, I hope you have a great rest of the day and a wonderful week coming up. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.